This is Catherine Otto. I'm here in Seattle with uh, Greg Roth, who's a faculty member in the Division of Cardiology and the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. And we're here to talk about his recent editorial in Heart entitled Statins After Acute Coronary Syndrome, A Missed Opportunity. So Greg, maybe we could start out by talking about what's the background for this uh, editorial and for the paper that the editorial refers to. This paper was by Karina Gray and her colleagues at um, the School of Population Health in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, And they picked up a question that I think is of really wide interest, which is whether people are actually using the medications that we know work and are important after myocardial infarction. Um, In this case, they used uh, a great data source using linked data sets in New Zealand to examine uh, the medication fills at the pharmacy of statins for a large number of patients who suffered myocardial infarction in New Zealand. So um, I think you know, the whole issue of you know, medication use is, is um, you know, how you tell whether your patients do it. What did, what did they find in this study in New Zealand? Well, um, they actually found that uh, a number of patients were not receiving the statins that they would benefit from over the three years uh, after they had their myocardial infarction. They were able to take advantage of a really comprehensive data set uh, in New Zealand in which they could link the hospital admission record for patients with myocardial infarction with their outpatient pharmacy data. And uh, by doing that, they were able to measure what's called the medication possession ratio, which is the proportion of patients who actually filled their prescription over that subsequent period of time. And I guess it, just because you fill your prescription doesn't mean you took your medicines, but I suppose uh, if people don't take them, they probably wouldn't keep refilling. Um, is that the idea behind that metric? Yeah, that's right. It's a really commonly used metric, and I think that's one of the strengths of the paper, is that this is really a standard way of measuring adherence to medications. Uh, What you do is you take the number of prescriptions that you expect to be filled over a certain period of time as the denominator, and the number that actually got filled as the numerator. And it's pretty standard to accept 80% of medications being filled as indicating reasonable adherence. And they found a number that's actually higher than has been found in a lot of other studies. Um, They found that it was just under 70% and declined only slightly over the next couple of years. Um, And so this is better than has been seen in some studies, but still it tells us that a very large proportion of patients after MI are not seeing statins at all. What do you think adherence rates are like in the United States or Europe? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's hard to answer because data sources for this kind of work are limited. Um, You know, we have good information from randomized clinical trials about what proportion of patients fill their medications after myocardial infarction. And in fact, in really well-known trials, it's been quite a bit lower. It's been, uh, you know, in the 30 to 50% range. Um, If we look in population representative data, For example, using uh, the Medicare Part D or prescription drug benefit in the United States to see what's going on in the real world in large populations, um, we see statin adherence rates that are lower than this, somewhere in the 50 to 60 percent range. Um, And so I would say that even though there are a lot of patients who aren't getting their statins, uh, New Zealand seems to be doing about as well as any other place. And then I think in your editorial you talk a lot about the, the idea of the methodology here and use the word 
the word big data. What, what's big data and how is that going to help us? Yeah, I mean, big data is sort of an interesting term that's become very uh, in vogue recently. And I don't know that there's any strict definition. Um, but in general, I think about big data problems as problems that can be answered using uh, really large sets of data and requiring some new methods for analysis that weren't available maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so taking care of the, f uh, taking advantage of the fact um, that the cost of storing really big data sets, linking really big data sets, and analyzing them has dropped uh, precipitously over the last couple of years. So I'll give you one example. You know, in this particular study in New Zealand, they were able to look at about 12,000 patients who'd had a heart attack. Um, but in the United States, a country that's you know, has about 300 million people in it, we have 60 million individuals who have the Medicare prescription drug benefit. That means 60 million people where we can look at their outpatient prescriptions over time starting in 2005. And so um, some of the analyses I've been involved in actually look at patient cohorts as large as, you know, 60 or even uh, larger, 60 million or even larger. Um, to do that kind of work, you need a lot of processing power, a lot of data storage capabilities, and you have to make sure that your analytic techniques are accounting for for some of the false positives that you get with those big numbers. So if people aren't taking their medicines, how does this data help us? Do we, do we know why they're not taking their medicines, or does this offer opportunities to target particular groups, or, or how do we use this information? Yeah, I mean, I think that this group in New Zealand did a really nice job of trying to make use of the data that they had available. You know, one of the limitations of retrospective studies of administrative data is that you're restricted to the variables that were already in the data set, you know, as opposed to a prospective cohort study where if you had a particular hypothesis about medication adherence, you could collect that information while you were doing your study. Um, even with that limitation, they looked at, I think, what are important variables, things that we know probably make a big difference to medication adherence. They looked at sex, they looked at ethnic background, they looked at socioeconomic factors. I mean, these are probably going to turn out to have um, big implications as we figure out how to help people take their medications. Um, I, mean, I think that there's some uh, limitations uh, in, in the data they used. Uh, for instance, if you're trying to figure out what the socioeconomic status is of an individual in this kind of study, First, you have to figure out how do you define that. Um, and secondly, uh, these kinds of studies often rely on census data. So they will tag each person in the cohort with the socioeconomic status of the census track or zip code or region, postal code, where they lived. And we know that these regions, these small areas, are really heterogeneous. And so uh, that may not really tell us exactly what that person's socioeconomic st status is, and it might inject some bias into the study. Um, so I think there are a lot of opportunities to think about how can we take these really rich data sets that are really big and tell us what's going on in an entire country and add additional information, so linking additional pieces of information from other data sources. So what do you think will be the long-term benefit of this kind of research? So. This kind of research, I think, is going to answer a lot of questions about why people may or may not take their medications. But at the same time, I think it's going to form the foundation of um, techniques for helping patients take 
their medications more regularly. I think as we make this data more transparent and more accessible to the individuals who are contributing the data, both patients and the medical centers where they're going, um, we can help them see and benchmark their performance over time and even drill down to smaller areas like a, a single health system, a single hospital, or even a single clinic so that people who are making decisions within these health systems can know you know, how am I performing, how am I performing over time, and if I make a change in the way I'm delivering care, did it make any difference? Yeah, that sounds uh, really important. I think that's going to be um, excellent going forward. So thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you.